we don't go to him. But he always comes to us. And it is indeed a blessing that he does because by ourselves we uh, probably wouldn't make it as we should. Our New Testament scripture reading today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So Paul is writing to the Corinthian Christians here. And there are things going on in the church that are not what he wants to see. Things are happening there that he doesn't like. So, and, and the things have to do with worldliness. It has to do with fighting against sin, fighting against Satan, fighting against the world. And in the passage I'm going to read, which is verses 3 through 5, he talks about, about fighting that battle, about fighting that war. So, so the Corinthian church had to fight. And, and the church of today, our church, has to fight also. We don't like to think of that. We don't often think of that. But the truth is we do. Now Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians of the tools of the, of the battle that they have to fight and of the tools that they can use, the armaments that they can use. So hear then God's holy word. Verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Then please turn with me to the Old Testament, the Old Testament passage and our text for today, which comes from Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Now, those of you who were here last week remember that, that in the introduction to last week's message, I talked about the children of Israel had come through the wilderness. They had been 40 years in the wilderness. The whole generation had died because of their sinfulness, because of their not wanting to believe it, that God could deliver them. And so they came to, to the promised land to the outside of the city of Jericho. So if you can envision a map there on the east side of the Jordan River, not on the west side. And there's the Jordan River and there, then there's the city of Jericho. So they're at that point, the same point where Moses gave his speech and told them about God giving them the land. And that when they captured that land, they were not to think that they deserved it, that they were sinless, therefore that's why God gave that to them. But instead... They were sinners. But the people of Canaan, the people of the land, were worse sinners. And so God had to get rid of them. He had to annihilate them. That, that was God's reason for sending the Israelites back after their captivity. One of the reasons for sending them back. In addition to other reasons we'll learn today. So things had to be done before they could go into the promised land. Things had been going on in the desert and the opportunity wasn't right for things like circumcision so before they could go into the promised land all of the male children all of the males had to be circumcised that of course was a mark of Christ in those days that was a mark that they were set apart in those days so they're at that point now that has happened and now now they're about to begin the conquest of Canaan that's where our story begins. Verse 13 through chapter 6, verse 5. Joshua 5, 13 through 6, verse 5. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence 
and asked the man, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the cities once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound the long blast of the trumpets, then have all of the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. That's God's holy word. Let's ask for his blessing on that word. Won't you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to thank you for your holy word. Thank you, Lord, that we can read it at any time. Thank you for the message that it gives to us. Lord, this morning, may we pay attention to your word. May we see your greatness in it. May we feel the challenges that you give to us and also the blessings that we receive from your hand. Be with one who delivers the word this morning too, Father, so that the word may not be his, but that he may be a tool in your hand to bring us all closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the more interesting people that I've met in my life was a man who I've met by the name of John. And I met him much the same way that I've met each and every one of you. I met him when I preached at his church. And after each and every service that I preached there, we would greet each other. Now, John was a, was a true dyed-in-the-wool Dutch Christian reformer. I don't know if that's good or not, but let me tell you what that means. That means that John staked out his claim in the church building. And like so many of us, he always sat in the same place, in the same bench. And you'd better not try and sit there if he wasn't there. So when I walked up to the, to the platform and, and stood behind the podium, there was John, the fourth bench back, on my right, right next to the center aisle. He was always there. After each service, we would greet each other at the door, and he would make comments about the message. And from his comments and his remarks, it was evident that he loved the Lord and he loved the Word of God and he, and he listened very, very carefully to the sermon. And so he made comments on the sermon. Most were good. I am here to report some were not quite as good. We discussed a few things. He was, he was a very interesting kind of guy. I appreciated him greatly. But I got to know him better on his 80th birthday celebration. One of the Sundays... When I was preaching in this church, the church bulletin included an invitation that the entire church was invited to John's apartment that afternoon to help him celebrate his 80th birthday. That's quite a milestone. So Bonnie and I talked it over and decided that we would go that afternoon too and visit with him. The host of people went along and, and we uh, had a good time there at his place. On that special day, his 80th birthday... He and I cemented a friendship that would last until God called him home. Like I said, John was an interesting person. He was very interesting because he served in World War II. And he didn't serve in the infantry, and he wasn't a truck driver or a cook. No, John, John was in a special position. 
He was a personal driver for General Dwight D. Eisenhower. Now, not everyone gets to that point. You have to be an excellent marksman. And, and he gave me the whole list of all things he had to be in order to be in that position. Not everyone could make it. And the stories that John told about those terrible years of war were spellbinding. Often when I would return to his church, and I preached down there quite often for a while, they were without a pastor, we would get together and he would continue telling me about some of the things that he had done in the war, some of the interesting things that he had the, the option, or the, the, the opportunity to do, like, for instance, frisking Winston Churchill. Not everyone had that, that, that uh, option. And other world leaders also who came to, to strategize with Eisenhower about war issues. Now, one of the stories I remember very well was about, about General Eisenhower's concern for his troops just before D-Day. Indeed, this shows the kind of man that General Eisenhower was. He, he was so common that he would even talk over strategies with his driver. It wasn't only with his sergeants, his, his other uh, people that surrounded him, but even with his driver. In early night, June of 1944, just days before the Allies landed, on the Normandy beaches, Eisenhower's mind was, was filled with doubts and worries and fears and concerns. He wondered, he wondered if the Allies could succeed in an assault so big that it could turn the tide of the war. The war had already gone on far too long, far too many lives had been lost. He wondered if the Allies' deception campaign had misled the German armies enough so they wouldn't realize what was really happening behind the scenes. They wouldn't realize all the troop buildup and the machinery buildup, the artillery buildup that was a couple miles out to sea, just waiting to be called ashore. And he worried about the weather. The weather at that time of the year on those days was very, very bad. There were intense waves on the seas. He worried about that. And Normandy Beach was not the beach he would have chosen. It was the beach where it had to happen. The beach was shallow. The water was shallow coming into the Normandy Beach. So when, when the troop carriers came and, and opened the gate and, and the troop people ran out, it was very possible that some of those large waves would wash that, that ship, that carrier, back onto the beach so it wouldn't be able to pull away. It wouldn't be able to be used again to carry more troops, needed troops ashore. On that last night before the battle, General Eisenhower had scores of questions on his mind, like, would the Allies be successful? And what would be the cost, the price in Allied blood and Allied lives? Eisenhower cared that much for his soldiers. Now, in our scripture lesson this morning, we see Joshua, General Joshua, if you will, on the eve of the biggest battle of his life in very much the same position. Now, though the Bible doesn't tell us, I can imagine that the scene before us takes place at nightfall, at dusk at least. Otherwise, I think that, that Joshua would have been spotted by the enemy. There were enemy people, enemy soldiers walking around the, the top of the, of the wall, and they would have spotted him, and with their bows and arrows, they would have, they would have killed him. So it's probably dusk, getting dark, probably closer to dark than to light. And looming in front of him stands the city of Jericho. It was a grand city. It was guarding the eastern entrance to the promised land. It was guarding the fords of the Jordan River. It's the only place that was shallow enough for people to, to walk across that river most of the year. 
It was guarding that point. It was a very important city. And because it was such an important city, it was built very, very strong. It had high walls reaching to the sky, thick walls. And on the inside of those walls, fighting men poised, ready to protect their city, ready to protect their family, their wives, and their children. Like General Eisenhower, on this night before the battle, Joshua too had doubts and fears and worries and concerns. He wondered if the reports of his spies were accurate. He worried about the accuracy of those archers perched up there on the city wall as they would shoot down on his soldiers. He was troubled by those high and thick walls made out of stones, square chunks of stone so big that they really couldn't be moved. And he was anxious about the skill of his soldiers. Like Eisenhower, Joshua had a big question mark in his mind that last night before battle, would Israel be successful? And how many of his people would pay with their blood and with their lives? As Joshua stands then before the city of Jericho, filled with those doubts and fears and concerns and worries, he's startled when he looks up and sees a man standing in front of him, a man who identifies himself as a commander of the army of the Lord. But who is this commander? Who is he really? I mean, it's evident he's not a mere man, because the Bible tells us that Joshua falls face down to the ground in reverence before him. And he refers to him as my Lord. Who is this man? Who, who is this commander? His true identification becomes evident when he says to Joshua, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. It's reminiscent of the time that God spoke through Moses in the middle of the wilderness from that burning bush. Joshua and Moses received the same command, take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy ground. So who is he? Could it be, could it be that he's an angel of the Lord? Was he the one who appeared to Abraham and promised that Sarah would have a son about this time next year? Did he stop Abraham's knife from killing Isaac who was tied down to the altar at the top of Mount Moriah? Mount Moriah? Was he the one who stopped Abraham's knife? Was it he who wrestled with, with Jacob? Well, I agree with Bible scholars who think this angel of the Lord was a visible presence of Jesus before he took on his human flesh. And it's a truth that's confirmed for us in Joshua 6, verse 2, where the man Joshua is speaking to is identified, not this time as the commander of the Lord's army, but as the Lord God himself. It was God then who stood before Joshua. Now put yourself in Joshua's place, in his shoes for a moment this morning, as he stands in the shadows of the walls of Jericho, strategizing about the battle. And suddenly when you're deep in thought, suddenly when you look up, there's a man standing in front of you, a man with a drawn sword in his hand. How, how would you react? What would you do? Well, perhaps you'd ask the same question Joshua did. Are you for us or for our enemies? See, Joshua didn't know if this man was friend or foe. Are you for us or for our enemies? It's a crucial question. 
Especially when you're faced by a man with a sword in his hand. I mean, if he's a friend, then you have nothing to fear. But if he's an enemy, then you'd better prepare to fight yourself. Are you for us? Or for our enemies? Joshua needs to know if he has to draw his sword and engage a stranger. Or if he needs to shake his hand. And the man answers in what I think is a very, very strange way. When Joshua asked, are you for us or for enemies? The man answered, neither. Neither? That's not much of an answer. That doesn't answer any questions. Joshua needs to know, are you friend or foe? Do I have to fight you? Or do I have to talk with you about strategy and, and shake your hand? Are you for us or are you against us? See, Joshua knew that if it came down to a fight with the city of Jericho, that Israel did not stand much of a chance. The Canaanites inside of that city wall are skilled, trained warriors. They know how to handle swords and spears and shields and bows and arrows. The Israelites aren't. The Israelites are, are a tribe of ex-slaves with little or no military training. And the small amount of fighting that they have done has been in the open desert. And most of that fighting was just to take care of a skirmish or two. Really, really nothing military at all. And this, this is the first time they've even been close to a fortified city. For 40 years they've, they've been in the wilderness as these, this group was growing up. So they come with neither experience or equipment to fight a city that mighty. They didn't even have equipment to to engage Jericho in siege warfare. Are you for us? Or for our enemies? Neither. But as a commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. Now listen, listen very carefully to those words. They tell us already whose the battle is. It isn't Israel's battle with Jericho, it's God's battle. It isn't Joshua who will issue the orders and plot the strategy. It isn't Joshua who will lead Israel. The real general is the commander of the army of the Lord. These words should tell us something about Israel's role in the battle. You see, it's not a case of whether or not the man is for or against Israel. It's a case of whether or not Israel is for or against God. It's the Lord's fight. That's plain to see. It's the Lord's battle. The real question is, who is on the Lord's side? And who is fighting in the Lord's army? Israel's role is to be part of the Lord's army. Think of it. They're one of the many weapons that God can choose from. But God's arsenal also includes things like wind and rain. Like hail and snow. Like heat and cold. Like earthquakes and lightning. And if necessary, even legions of angels. As commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Really, really, these are words of victory for Joshua. And for Israel. See, Jericho's fight won't be against desert nomads, unskilled with sword and spear. Instead, Joshua will be fighting against the Lord God Almighty and his army. And who? Who can stand against the Lord's army? I mean, think of it. He is the God of heaven above and the earth below. He is the one. He is the one who enabled an old woman, far past childbearing years, to have a child. 
He's the one who visited those terrible ten plagues on, on the land of Egypt. No doubt the Canaanites had heard about them. He's the one who dried up the Red Sea so his people could walk through on dry ground. He's the one who provided water from the rock in the middle of the wilderness for 40 years so nobody went thirsty. Not, not even the animals. He's the one who rained down manna from the heaven. So no one went to bed hungry. No one. In reality. When you think of it, it's futile for the Canaanites to even think about fighting, isn't it? I mean, there's no use to lock the, lock the city gates or guard the walls. For the God who opposes them is almighty enough to crush them in a moment like you and I would crush a bug on the sidewalk. God's word in chapter 6 verse 2 emphasizes the surety of victory. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. I want you to notice that God doesn't say here, I will deliver you. He says, I have delivered. These words tell us that the battle was already God's. God's purpose had been decided. And keep in mind, this was said before the battle was fought. Jericho and Canaan belonged to his people. And what God intends... What God decrees and what God promises is as good as done. He can make it happen because he is the Lord God Almighty. Nothing can change the plans he announced already to Abraham. That the land of Canaan and indeed the city of Jericho, which was a very, very old city, would one day belong to his people, his offspring, those that numbered as the sands of the seashore. So in light of this, consider Israel's part in the upcoming battle. Does the commander of the Lord's army <coughs> excuse me, does the commander of the Lord's army give Israel a leading role in Jericho's defeat? Does he use the cunning of, of General Joshua and the skill and the swiftness of the Israelite soldiers? Not so much. No. Israel's part of the battle is to simply march around the city wall thirteen times. No more, no less. Thirteen times. Then God promises when they hear the trumpet and they all give a loud shout that the walls of Jericho, these mighty walls, these sick walls made out of huge stones, these walls of Jericho will come tumbling down. It's quite evident, isn't it? Jericho's defeat and Israel's victory is by grace and it's by faith. The grace comes from God. The people have to have faith and even that faith the faith of the people comes from God by grace, through faith. It's not by military might. As we see throughout the Bible, grace for God's covenant people <clears throat> means judgment for the godless and for the wicked. The sword, the sword in the hand of the commander of the Lord's army is two-edged. It's a sword of grace and salvation for those who believe. But it's a sword of judgment and punishment for those who do not. And that's especially evident in the rest of the story. Joshua told the people that every living creature and every object in the city was be, to be destroyed. Except for Rahab, because of a promise that the spies had made to her when, when she helped them to escape and hid them. And the silver and gold, the silver and gold went into the treasury of the temple. We might be inclined to ask, why this horrible judgment? I mean, why was everyone to be killed? Certainly there were innocent women and children in that city. Why, why did they have to be killed? 
Well, the wrath we witness here <coughs> is covenant wrath. Long before the people of Jericho and Canaan had forsaken God, they had broken covenant, the covenant that was established with all of the earth at the time of creation, reestablished after the flood. See, that's the thing about covenant breaking. It always results in covenant wrath. Those who forsake God and his law and his covenant can only expect judgment and wrath. Now, as I see it, there are four lessons for us to take home from this passage today. Four lessons for us to be challenged by to remember in this passage. The first, the first is a word of warning. As you read through the Bible, you will notice that often a word of warning comes first. Which shows us that warning is important. We need to pay attention. We need to listen up. Word of warning. Just as it was with the Canaanites, so it is with you and me. Breaking covenant results in covenant wrath. You and I have to make certain that we keep faith in and with God and that we walk obediently before him. The words of, of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 warn us again that it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God keeps a record, you see, of those who are disobedient. And he punishes those who forsake him. Bob Green, a former columnist for the Chicago Tribune, had a theory about what was wrong with our world. He blamed it on the death of the permanent record. He recalled how grade school children once lived in the fear of having their bad behavior noted on the permanent record. Now, many of you are much younger than I am. Those of you who are my age or older probably remember that permanent record. The teacher had a, had a book laying in front of her on the desk, and it was a planning book. So all of the, all of the different uh, topics and subjects she was going to talk about, that they were written in it. But there were also spaces where she could make notes about how the children behaved. Wayne probably remembers that because his name was no doubt in those blank spaces. <laughs> the Connors kids, they had a reputation. Because of this fear, people learned in their youth to stop before they did something deceitful, to stop before they did something unethical, to stop before they did something that would get them deeply in trouble. They stopped not because they were such good kids, not at all, but because they were afraid of having their actions noted and written down in the permanent record. Now today, right, wrote Mr. Green, People have come to the conclusion that there is no such thing as a permanent record. In fact, they believe that no one even has right to keep track nowadays. And Green continued with today's emphasis on rights. If a school child were ever threatened with, someone go with something going on his permanent record, he'd probably sue under the Freedom of Information Act and gain possession of his files before mid-morning recess. Now, behind Green's humor is an excellent point. Where there is no fear of a lasting record, people tend to do whatever they think they can get away with. Let me repeat that. Where there is not a permanent record, people tend to do whatever they think they can get away with. Now, the reality is a permanent record does exist. And it is kept by God. And one day, Revelation chapter 20 tells us the books will be opened. And all of those who forsake the Lord will be punished. 
That's a warning. It's a warning for the Israelites. It's a warning for us. So that's the first lesson we can take home. There is a permanent record. Don't think that there's not. There's a permanent record. Second, the second lesson is there's a word of comfort. If there's a word of warning, then there must, that also must be followed by a word of comfort. That's how it works in the Bible. That's how it ought to work in our lives. There's a word of comfort. We must realize that just as Israel can only gain victory over Jericho and over Canaan by grace through faith, as I mentioned earlier, so too we can only gain victory over Satan and sin and death by grace through faith. And in both cases, Israel's and ours, it's a gift. It's a gift. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. It's a gift. We don't necessarily understand gifts. World-famous artist Picasso was virtually unknown when he painted his portrait of the American writer Gertrude Stein sometime 1905-1906, right in that, in that time period. And when it was finished, Picasso gave the portrait to Miss Stein. Since, as the artist himself recalled, at that time in his career, the difference between a gift and a sale was piddling. In other words... His paintings weren't very good and they weren't worth, worth much money, so he just gave it to her. Now, some years later, that same portrait attracted the interest of millionaire art collector Dr. Albert Barnes, who asked Miss Stein how much she had paid Picasso for that portrait. Nothing, she said. He gave it to me as a gift. Now, Barnes had a very difficult time accepting the fact that such a priceless work of art could have been given as a gift. I mean, it's worth many thousands of dollars. It was given away. When is the last time you thought about the gospel of Jesus Christ that way? We should be amazed every moment of every day that the priceless gift of redemption given to us as a free gift. A free gift for so much more than a painting in a museum someplace. A free gift that we carry with us. A free gift that will carry us with it into eternity. Think for a moment of what we have been given in Christ. Let's start with eternal life. Where else can you get that? Only as a gift through the blood of Jesus Christ, along with the riches of heaven. And I'm going to stop there because that list is endless and we can go on for the rest of the week, far past Thanksgiving Day, talking about the gifts that are ours in, and through Jesus Christ. The list is endless. And the entire list of gifts is given to us by grace and we accept it through faith, the faith that comes as a gift also. That's... That's the second lesson for us. First, there's a warning. Second, there's a gift that far, far covers that warning. Gift of eternal life that makes us whole. The gift of Jesus. Third, with Israel, we can say that God is true to his covenant and his promises. In this passage, we see God kept the promise that he made to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob about the land of Canaan belonging, being theirs, belonging to them. Now keep in mind that in between, in between that promise were many, many years, 400 years of captivity in Egypt. Everybody else probably forgot about that promise. God did not forget. 
fact, history shows us that God never ever backs away from his promises. Pick any promise God has made to you. The promise of eternal life, we know that is ours. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is ours because of the spirit who lives in our heart reminds us of that in the things that we see, the things that we do, the things that we say. The promise of the spirit and his gifts, they live in our hearts. That's what I mentioned. The comforter that came when, when Jesus ascended into heaven. And with that, we get the gifts of the spirit and we get the fruits of the spirit. They're ours today. And there's a promise of answered prayers. Have you ever sat quietly and thought about the prayers that you've prayed and how all of them were answered? Have you ever thought of that? Oh, maybe not answered exactly the way we wanted to be, but many times they are too. We just don't acknowledge it. Think of the answered prayers. They're a gift. Think of the promise of Christ's return. That will happen. The promise of resurrection has already happened. The promise of preserving and guarding our souls happens day after day. The promise of never leaving us or forsaking us is ours today. We know that. We feel that. That's our hope for the future. All of these promises, every single one is kept by God. Every single one. He always has been and always will be true to his word. That's the third lesson. First the warning, then the comfort. Now the lesson, the lesson that he never backs away from his promise. He never leaves us. Fourth and finally, as it is with Israel, so do we need to ask the right question. Don't ask God, are you on my side? You know that he is. Instead, ask God, am I on your side? Am I on your side? Don't ask God, will you fight for me? Instead, ask if you're in God's army. The battle you see is the Lord's. It's not you or me who battles sin and Satan and evil and injustice. God in Christ does that. We don't have to. He does that for us. It's his battle. But don't forget that we are part of his army. We are part of his army fighting evil in this world, in this life, with those tools that Paul wrote about to the Corinthian church, not man-made tools, tools that come from above. We're in his army. We're part of his army. In closing, then, let me ask a personal question. Are you, are you serving in the Lord's army? Are you serving in God's army? Are you a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb, as the song says? Do you go out into the world day after day after day to do battle against sin and Satan? Not in your own strength, but in the strength of Christ, following Christ, letting him lead you. Do you go out into the world to fight battles for Christ and with Christ? Are you a soldier of the cross? You're part of God's army. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word and thank you for the lessons that we can receive from it. Lord, we thank you for the warning. We aren't always comfortable with warnings because sometimes, Lord, those warnings can pick at our heart and kind of reveal things that we don't want to have revealed. But, Lord, we know that a warning is important. And then, Lord, after that warning... And it's a serious warning about the wrath of God. After that warning comes the comfort. We thank you for that lesson, the lesson of the comfort that we have in knowing you, that, that you love us, 
and that you will care for us and that nothing will happen to us that is more than we can handle. Nothing will happen to us outside of your will for our lives and nothing will happen to us that isn't best for us. Help us to understand that. Then, Lord, too, we ask that you will help us to remain true, true to your covenant. Help us to ponder, Lord, the promises that you have kept for us, the prayers you have answered, the healings that you have wrought because of the prayers that we've offered. Lord, help us not to, not to forget all you have done for us. And, Lord, thank you, too, for the lesson that we need to know that we are part of your army, just as the wind and the rain and, and the sun and the hail and the legions of angels, so we, too, we are part of your army. Help us, Lord, to stand up to defend the cause of righteousness in the sinful world that we live. Empower us to do that in the strength of Jesus. We pray this in his name.